0: Welcome to the Gablecast, Series 6, Episode 27. This podcast is brought to you by the Alsa Malaysia and Alsa International Islamic University Malaysia. This episode is titled, The Protection of Women and Children Against Domestic Violence During COVID-19. We hope you guys enjoy the episode.
1: Hello and greetings everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gablecast. My name is Aisha. I'm from ALSA IIUM and I will be your host today. Before we begin, first and foremost, do allow me to introduce our honorable guest for today, Ms. Nishian from Women's Aid Organization Malaysia. Since our topic for today concerns about the issue of the protection of women and children against domestic violence, particularly during this COVID-19 situation, thus we are grateful to have Ms. Lishian here as our speaker who is representing Women's Aid Organization. In Malaysia, Women's Aid Organization is known to be the largest service provider for domestic violence survivors, where they help to provide shelter to over 100 women and children each year, on top of helping to educate women and the general public about their rights when it comes to domestic violence. So, Ms. Nishian, how are you doing today?
0: Hi, Aisha. Thank you so much for inviting the Women's Aid Organisation. I'm doing great today. How about you?
1: Uh, Great to hear that same. (laughs) I mean, it's the weekend, so... We're just we're just doing whatever that we can do to get uh, to get past this weekend. So firstly mm-hmm. we would like to express our gratitude to you for being here today. Thank you so much for your participation. Okay it can be seen that this covid-19 situation uh, pandemic has affected a lot of people affecting everyone regardless of gender status and whatnot but among others one particular concern which arose from this horror of pandemic is that there has been an increase in domestic violence incidents especially among women and children domestic violence itself is not an uncommon uncommon phenomenon throughout the world and in malaysia domestic violence is considered one of the most serious social problems where it has been reported that 9 Percent of women in Malaysia have experienced at least some form of domestic violence by their inter- intimate partner in their lifetime. Therefore, my first question to you, Ms. for today is that looking at the current statistics of domestic violence in our country, in your opinion, how severe do you think? Okay, thank you, Aisha, for the introduction and for this question.
0: All right, so first of all, based on a research by the USM, The general position of domestic violence in Malaysia is that about 9% of women in an intimate relationship or in a marriage have been abused by their partner. And the reported cases of domestic violence violence have been increasing throughout the years and especially during this um, trying times of MCO. And zooming into last year, 2020, about 5,260 cases were reported to our police and more than 2,500 cases were reported to our Ministry of Women and Family, Community and Development through their hotline, Talian Kase at 15999. So moving forward, in the first quarter of this year, 2021, Talian Kase has already received 902 reports. So we should bear in mind that all the reports to several other NGOs in Malaysia have not been included in the statistics yet. And also not to forget, there might be many more unreported cases due to uh, maybe certain reasons or circumstances whatsoever. So this is indeed a serious issue in Malaysia and of course around the world as well. And I think that we should take this issue seriously. Back to you, Aisha.
1: Thank you, Ms. Uh Chien. So from what you said previously, it can be seen that this issue is actually very grave and it requires immediate action from uh, a lot of organizations and not just the government. So my next question is, besides physical violence, what other forms of abuses which could possibly take place during this pandemic?
0: Okay, so when we talk about domestic violence, I believe that the very first thing that pops up in our mind would be the physical violence or physical abuse. Perhaps that is more commonly heard or seen on the news, right? So domestic violence usually occurs when there is an imbalance of power. So the perpetrator, meaning the individual inflicting the harm, would usually think that he or she is more powerful or has a higher standing than the victim or we call them survivors and they are usually oppressive and manipulative. So the power of imbalance mindset and action could also take place in other forms of domestic violence. For example, psychological abuse, for example, yelling, screaming, demeaning, um, humiliating the partner or the children, sexual abuse, social abuse, by prohibiting the survivor from seeing the friends and family, technology abuse, by monitoring and limiting the survivor's interaction, with the outside world, and of course, financial abuse as well. So I I will explain a little more about what um, is a financial abuse. So this abuse usually happens when an individual is controlling another party's um, ability to use or to maintain their own money and resources, for example, by taking away the credit cards or the monies without consent or damaging the party's possession or property, or preventing them from obtaining employment or from working. So as long as anything that will hinder the survivor's financial freedom would constitute as financial abuse. And the reason for all these acts are to gain control over the survivor's activities to prevent them from leaving the relationship. So this is kind of like um, an invisible leech, if I may put it that way. And this would build a rather unhealthy reliance or attachment on the perpetrator itself. So different types of domestic violence, physical, psychological, sexual, social, technology, and financial.
1: Sorry, sorry about that. So thank you Ms. Yen uh, for your clear and long explanation. So from what I can gather at the end of the day it's the power of imbalance that can actually lead to domestic violence and not just physical violence itself. So now that we already have a clear picture on the current situation of domestic violence in Malaysia, we shall now look at the impact of COVID-19 towards this issue. So firstly, uh, Ms. Yen, do you agree that this pandemic no. has actually helped to further aggravate the issue of domestic violence involving women and children in this uh, country? If you may elaborate more on that.
0: Yes, I would say so. So besides then, the power of imbalance that we have just discussed previously, one of the reasons that caused the ex- escalation of domestic violence in this pandemic uh, could highly be possible of the increase in the potential triggers of the domestic violence so before we move on to the potential triggers, we shall first look at the cycle of domestic violence. So usually in a cycle of domestic violence, they, uh, it constitute of four stages. First is the honeymoon stage, whereby the survivors would be loved and cared by the perpetrator a lot. And then we'll be moving on to the tension phase, whereby the tension will start to pile up and then it would lead to the violence phase. So, between the tension and violence phase, there would be a trigger point in somewhere which would cause the outbreak of the violence by the perpetrator. And after that, it would be the fourth phase with uh, which is the reconciliation phase with, with all the promise and apologies. And so, this is the point where the survivors would usually try or they would disregard all the violence that they have suffered so far and then they would start the cycle again and again. Honeymoon, tension, violence, reconciliation, again. All right. So in this pandemic, I observed that the two main triggers that are causing the outbreak of violence are, firstly, financial difficulty, and secondly, social isolation. Right, financial difficulty. Of course, this pandemic has affected the economy brutally, and many people have lost their job or has suffered a pay cut. So this tends to increase the stress level of the affected individuals. And the increasing stress level would definitely act as a trigger for the perpetrator to explode or for violence to happen, you see. And moving on to the social isolation, because people are not allowed to travel or to hang out for social events during the implementation of this MCO now, so many families are to spend a lot more time together during this pandemic in an enclosed property or the enclosed house and arguments and conflicts tend to happen all the time due to maybe lack of personal space or stress and all these would be triggers of domestic violence and not forgetting to mention alcoholic drinking habit uh, would would constitute to the violence as well so two main triggers uh, during this pandemic financial difficulty and social isolation
1: okay just to uh just to reinstate by what you said the two main triggers uh, which caused uh, the which helped to further aggravate this issue of domestic violence in this current uh, pandemic situation is because of financial situation and also because of the uh self isolation uh, probably due to the restrictions of movements and also the policies of lockdown so um Referring to what you just said just now, my next question is, what are the current existing safeguards for these women and children in Malaysia? For example, in terms of legal protection, what are the measures that the victims can possibly take? Okay, so the very
0: first thing that the victim could do is ask for help. From who? From the police, from the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, or from the NGOs in Malaysia. Right, so the woman can call the police or the ministry or the NGOs first uh, to consult and to seek for help as to what they should do and whether they should take any steps in order to protect themselves depending on the severity of the domestic violence uh, in their situation. So the second step would be deciding on whether to apply for an emergency protection order, or we call EPO, from Jabatan Kebajikan Masyarakat. Or if, if the survivor does not know how to do so, they can just call the Talian Kase by our ministry at 15999 or they could also call the Women's Aid Organization for help and our hotline would be 30008858. Okay? 30008858. And During the time when they want, um, when the survivors would like to apply for an EPO, emergency protection order, they should bring along their IC together with their children's birth certificate. So this emergency protection order is an order to restrict or to prohibit the perpetrator from going near to the survivor in order to prevent them from harming the survivors further. And this EPO would last only for seven days. During this seven days uh, span itself, the survivors should make a police report if they haven't done so. And the police officer, or we call it an uh, investigation officer, will start an investigation before charging the perpetrator in court. So, uh, between the time span of after making a police report and before the perpetrator is being charged in court, the survivors can actually apply for another protection order. So this second protection order would be called as interim protection order, meaning temporary protection order. And basically, this is uh, almost the same thing as the emergency protection order, just that uh, the survivors have to apply to court to obtain this IPO by bringing along their police report, the police referral letter, their IC, and the children's uh, birth certificate as well. And this IPO would last for one month. If at the end of uh, this one month, the perpetrator has not been charged to the court, please, please, the survivors should reapply this interim protection order again in order to protect their safety. Okay, now we'll be moving on to the last kind of protection order, which is, uh, we just call it protection order. So if the perpetrator has been charged in court, then the survivors could apply for this protection order. And it could be permanent or for a longer period, depending uh, to the decision of the court. But this would definitely last longer than the previous EPO and IPO. All right. And the third thing that a survivor could do is to seek for help from a shelter or to escape from, the current, from their current uh, residence. So, for example, the Women's Aid Organization do provide shelter for survivors as well. So you could just call out uh, our hotline and to seek for help. All right back to you, Aisha.
1: Thank you again, uh, Ms. Yen. More along that note, are there any significant barriers that women are facing in seeking protection under the law? For example, uh, you've mentioned previously that the first step that they need to do is to ask for help. But usually in most domestic violence cases, we can see that the victims, uh, they have problems in asking for help, maybe because of the stigma from society, or maybe because they're under uh, psychological pressure not to do that, or they have been manipulated. So uh, how would you explain more uh, when it comes to that issue?
0: Right, so the very first thing, okay, what I'll say... uh, in the following will be directed towards the survivors of domestic violence, okay? The very first thing is to always bear in mind that it is not your fault because no one deserves to be abused by another person, especially someone who is so close to you or is your family member, and you are not the cause of domestic violence, okay? So please, please put all the stigmas aside and please place the safety and health uh, of yourself and of your children first, before thinking of any of the social stigmas of or uh, what people would say or anything else that is not life-threatening in that sort. all
1: right. I agree with you, Ms. Chien, particularly on that matter. It's because I think that one of the reasons why a lot of victims are very scared uh, to ask for help is because of all these things, uh, stigmas, and also because of... Uh, not many people understand uh, that they have a lot to sacrifice or they have a lot to risk actually uh, in, return to, uh, in return for help. Uh, so uh, thank you actually, once again, uh, for providing us with a much clearer understanding on how the law oper- operates to help those women and children in this matter. So moving on to this next part in which, um, in the event that one was a victim of domestic violence, then how could this person possibly recover from their trauma? All
0: right, the very first thing is, um the same as well to reach out, to reach out and to ask for help. You can ask for help from any person, for example, from other family members, from your relatives or friends, and also can ask for help from the NGOs by calling our hotlines for some counseling sessions. And even do visit a psychiatrist or counselors if you require the help or the medication. Okay. And another important part is um, the self enhancement of survivors. So it is very important for the survivors to increase their self-confidence and to be able to socialize normally. But of course, I believe this will definitely take a lot of time and effort for them to walk out of their trauma and to um, socialize uh, normally back in society again. So it is uh, also very important to be alert of all the future occurrences. For example, if they have sensed uh, that there, there is something wrong or they have been caught up in another cycle of domestic violence, please be brave to break the cycle and leave, okay? Because you do not want to remain or to be maintained as a domestic violence victim for all the time, yeah?
1: Uh, on that note, I would like to add that um, we as a members of society, um, we also have to be alert uh, if anyone who's close to us, uh, you know, we, we might never, uh, we might could never know if yes. they are the, um, the victims of domestic violence and stuff. So we have to be, um, we have to be more aware about our own surroundings. And at the end of the day, we have to also be understanding and supportive of whatever that yeah. they are doing. So, um, okay. Now... Let's say, if the person is not a first-hand domestic violence victim, for example, children being in an abusive household, then in their situations, how could they cope with the post-traumatic consequences?
0: I'd say that um, for second-hand domestic violence victim, the steps to to heal would be almost the same as the first-hand survival, but for children, it would be more important to reach out for some professional counselling sessions because uh, of the nature of their mindset and because they are not not used to all this um, violence and it's very unhealthy for young children to be exposed uh, in a very young stage. So it is important to reach out for some professional assistance and also self-enhancement as well. This is, of course, very important for for any kind of victims in um, domestic violence in order for them to boost their own confidence.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Um, now moving on to the part of suggestions and recovery for this issue. What are your thoughts on the inadequacy of law in this country from the aspect of enforcement or protection given to the victims of domestic violence? For example, uh, are there any specific loopholes in law that we have today?
0: Yeah, I would say that the more problematic aspect is the procedural aspect. So, for example, I've heard of a case whereby the police only accepts reports made by the victim or by the survivor herself, but not any of her family members. So in a case whereby the victim um, is confined or could not uh, make a police report on her own, then there will be no action taken by the police. So this is a very, uh, very serious issue, actually. And the second issue would be evidence collecting, right? So as we all know, in law, uh, evidence is very important. So if you do not have enough evidence, the police might not be able to charge the perpetrator in court. So it is very important to remind all the survivors to make sure that you collect evidence, make sure that you take pictures of your injuries, make sure that you get your medical report if it is possible, video recording of the happenings of domestic violence, voice recording, or even screenshots of all the threatening messages. Okay, So all this evidence would be put to great use for the police when they are to charge the perpetrator in court, okay? And the next issue would be the enforcement issue, like what you have mentioned, Aisha. So even after a police report has been made, there might be no action taken by the police or in the event that a protection order has been breached, meaning the survivors have obtained a protection order, but but the perpetrator did not follow or did not abide the protection order and they breach it and continue to stay in a very close distance with the survivors, so the survivors might still have to return to the same residence and to continue to stay together with the perpetrator, especially during uh, these times of MCO. So these are all the very practical issues and practical uh, problematic aspects uh, that we have to look into because if not, all the efforts that we take would be just, uh, this, just be disregarded
1: Uh, Thank you, Ms. Chen, once again, for providing us with another perspective of uh, how uh, the inadequacy of the laws themselves, because we rarely see uh, people talk about this matter on the legal aspects themselves. So I think it's very good for a lot of people, not just from anyone with with legal backgrounds, but from the public itself, so that we can call for a better legal procedure so that at the end of the day, justice won't be delayed uh, in being given to the victims of domestic violence themselves. So, yeah. um, moving on, in, in your view, are there any recommendations or steps that need to be taken in order to further improve the law protecting those victims of domestic violence, uh, domestic violence themselves? Okay, I would
0: suggest that the government to put more focus on this uh, severe issue of domestic violence and to put more pressure on the authorities to take a more proactive role in combating the domestic violence and uh from the pers- uh, from the perspective of the authorities they might consider of having more flexibility in handling these kind of cases for example it doesn't matter who the report maker are as long as um the case is being reported and also to speed up in their actions
1: On that note, I agree with you. I think that um emphasis should be given to the authorities in order how uh, in actually helping these uh, victims of domestic violence. So, more along that line, how can society possibly help to mitigate the issues of domestic violence during this pandemic, especially where we know that there are policies of lockdown, restriction of movement? So, how can we, members of society, can help those victims of domestic violence?
0: Okay. From the short term wise, I would suggest that all of us be more sensitive and attentive to our surroundings. Uh, for example, if we notice that there are any suspicious happenings around us, please try our best to help the survivors, of course, while ensuring your own safety. Yeah? Or if not, if you think that you are not capable to do so, please um, assist to report to the authorities or to the NGOs to check, uh, is there anything else that we could do or... Is is there anything else that we could help uh, in reporting the the situation to the authorities? And also, if we are capable, please help out the more unfortunate families financially in order to reduce their financial burden. As we have just discussed previously, this would um, lessen their stress level in terms of their financial difficulty and also reduce the trigger to domestic violence. Well, in the long-run perspective, I would say that Awareness spreading is very important. So people should be aware that domestic violence is wrong and should not be tolerated. So there is no inequality of level between humans. Everyone has equal rights and powers and everyone's dignity shall be protected. So no one deserves to be abused. And please be very alert and look out for the cycle of domestic violence. If yourself... Or anyone uh, around you, your surrounding acquaintances, are suffering from the cycle, please be brave and to break out from the cycle. If not, the domestic violence will continue on for the longest time that you, you can ever imagine. Okay.
1: Thank you, Ms. Yen. Um, so I think we finally reached our end of discussion for today. I would like to once again express my gratitude to Ms. Nishieh for being here with us until the end of the episode. Uh, So basically, just to recap, we've learned a lot of important new things today. For example, we've learned that domestic violence itself does not only uh, come from physical violence, but it stems from... uh, power imbalance and we also learned that financial factors also could be uh, one of the reasons why people are still trapped in this circle of domestic violence and that we should always uh, try to be more alert and aware about these whole issues of domestic violence. Um, So I think that's just all for today. Thank you for such an informative and interesting talk, which I believe is going to be beneficial to a lot of us. Uh, Thank you once again, Ms. Nishian. Thank you,
0: Aisha. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gavelcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the AUSA Malaysia and AUSA International Islamic University Malaysia. If you love the Gavelcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate and give us a review on any podcast platforms. For more info about AUSA Malaysia, do check us out at alsamalaysia.com and don't forget to
1: catch our next episode.